and found him. Where was he? Number eight. How old was Jesus approximately when the wise men came to visit him? Number nine. Did the wise men believe that Jesus was God? And number ten. This is a true and false. The wise men rode on camels. Alright, so there's all ten. Here's the answers. And now you can yell them out if you want. How did the wise men find Jesus? It was, this, it was this star. It was a star that rose in the east and they followed that star. Number two, where did they come from? Yeah, all the Bible tells us is they came from the east. It doesn't say any, anything more than that. It just says that they came from the east. Number three, how many wise men were there? Nobody knows. That's right, we don't know. Uh, typically there's three. There were three gifts that were mentioned, so it's, it's probable that there, three is a good number, but the, the Bible simply doesn't tell us. There could have been 12. Uh, early church history um, records that some folks believe there were 12 wise men that came, and that seems crazy to us because we could never fit all of them in the nativity scene. Have you seen how much those things cost? Yeah, I looked on uh, this week when I was looking up some of these things. $1,500 for a little nativity scene with hand-painted little wise men and everything. Anyways, I can think of better ways to spend my money. Number seven. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Number five. Four. Thank you. What does magi mean? I heard somebody yell it out earlier. Magician. Yeah, it's uh, actually translated as sorcerer. So it's like Merlin the magician, the sorcerer. Uh, Number five, what gifts did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are the things I'm hoping to get this year. Number six, how do you smell myrrh? Wow. I heard a lot of M-Y and R's. It is actually M-Y-R-R-H. You got a myrrh. All right, number seven. Where was Jesus when they found him? Well done, Thatcher. Well done. He was in a house. He was not in a manger when they came to find him. That's why we kicked him out of the manger a second ago because according to the Scriptures, they did not come to the manger. They came to a house. How old was Jesus when they came? Wow, all the way from a young child to two to four to three. The Bible doesn't say how old he was, but it does give us a little bit of parameter there. We know that he was less than two and he was more than one day old. How's that? So if you said something between two and one day old, you were maybe right, but you also may be wrong. Okay. Number nine, did they believe that Jesus was God? Well, I hear a lot of yeses and noes. All we know is that they worshiped him. Um, and sometimes back in those days, people would worship humans. So it's possible that they didn't believe he was God, but it's also quite possible that they believed he was God because they bowed down and worshiped him immediately. And number 10, true and false, the wise men came on camels. I, we have no idea how they got there. They could have walked. Um, it did, the Bible just doesn't say. 
But it, you'll see a lot of times in a nativity scene, you'll see a couple of camels hanging out with the donkeys and the, and the sheep. That's because the wise men were supposed to have come on them and they parked the donkeys and the sheep and everything in one area and then they went over to the baby Jesus. Anybody ever been on uh, Snopes.com? Snopes.com, it's an uh, urban legend site. If you don't know what an urban legend is, it's sometimes people start rumors and these rumors get passed on, especially through the internet now, to the point where people actually believe they're true and somebody just made it up. And so what Snopes does is you can go on there and you can type in something if you're not sure if it's true or not. So when you get those emails where you're like, whoa, no way, Billy Graham said that? So you just go on Snopes.com and you type it in and it'll tell you if Billy Graham really said it or not. Most likely, if you got it on the internet and somebody sent it as like a chain thing, so it was made up and you can go on there and check and then you don't have to send it on to all your friends and they send you one of those emails going, did you know that wasn't true? It's just word to the wise. But if you go on Snopes.com and you, you actually type in three wise men, you'll actually get a whole page that talks about what is true and what is urban legend about the three wise men. I think that's pretty cool. We live in a world where even Snopes is on to the urban legend part of the three wise men. And they'll go through there and they kind of point out some of the things that we're looking at this morning that a lot of what we often talk about, we even sang a song this morning about the three wise men. It's just woven into our, the fabric of our society. And a lot of it's just stuff that's been passed down throughout the generations, but it didn't come from Scripture. And so this morning what I want to do is actually read the passage in Scripture. There's only one of the Gospels that talks about the wise men. I want to read the passage, and we can look at what God actually says about these wise men. And then maybe we can learn a few lessons about them that come straight out of Scripture and not just out of our, our cultural observance. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. So if you could follow along with me, let's read about the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's all the Bible says about the Magi. Now, where did we get three wise men? 
Uh, in the Greek, the word that is used here is magos or magos, which is magi. Uh, that's what, the, what we refer to them in English. And this is also the same word that we get the word magic from. It's that same root. It's magician, magic, magi. It's all the same. And so that's what they're called in the Scriptures. Now, somewhere along the way, we decided we needed the Bible translated into English, not just in Greek anymore, not just in Latin. And the Bible was turned into an English translation. And when the New King James Version was, was written, where the whole Bible was now available in the English language, they changed it to wise men. And so many of our Bibles to this day, when, it's, right, when you read that about them, it doesn't say magi. It just says wise men. Okay? The interesting thing here is that two other places in the New Testament, that exact same word is used. They're both in Acts. And both times it's used in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 13. It's translated sorcerer. So it would be interesting, you know, if you said the three sorcerers showed up to visit Jesus. That would actually be more accurate. But we say the three wise men because it makes it a little bit more palatable for us. Now, wise men's not an incorrect translation. It's just a really, really kind way to say the same word. So sorcerer conjures up all the Eastern religion and everything. But these men, remember where did they come from? They came from the East. The work that they practiced that allowed them to have that title of Magi, they were probably priests in an Eastern religion. And at the heart of what they practiced was astrology, and they studied the stars, and they told people's fortunes, and they told the future, and they tried to study and look at the stars to find out what was going to happen in the world around them. They practiced magic. And in the midst of that, God spoke to them. And these men came and visited Jesus when he was an infant. So it's interesting that the, the term itself, the wise men, is a very, very kind way to refer to these men who came to visit Jesus. Now it says that they came from the east. We don't know where. Most likely Babylon, Persia, somewhere in Mesopotamia. I mean, if you get out a map today and you look and you just go due east of Bethlehem, of, of Jerusalem, you'll find that uh, the, the places that are most likely would be, um, again, Persia or Babylon. And those were countries that, that did study astrology. And so these magi probably traveled from there. It gives us a little bit of an idea how far they probably traveled. Now, of course, they didn't get on the fast train or hop in their car, or take a, you know, a flight. They walked either on foot or they rode on a fairly slow-moving uh, you know, donkey, camel, we don't know. And so it was a period of days, weeks that they traveled before they got to Jesus. Again, we don't know the exact timeline, but it was a while that they traveled. And so they come from the east and they show up to see this baby. Now, we also know a little bit about when they came, and this tells us a little bit about how old Jesus was. We know that King Herod was the king at that time. He's mentioned in this passage. We also know from other sources that King Herod died in 4 B.C. So four years B.C. was the year that Herod died. So that means Jesus was born before he died so that these events could happen. And we also know that uh, he was very small still when these magi came. So if we put the timeline together, Jesus was probably born somewhere in late 5 B.C. And then less than a year later, 
maybe 18 months, uh, that's when these magi came. Herod found out about what was going on. He tried to figure out exactly how old Jesus was based on their testimony. Remember, he asked them in this passage, when did you first see the star? And then we find out later on in the passage, we didn't read it this morning, but Herod actually says that all children two years old and younger must be killed, all baby boys, because he's trying to estimate about how old this baby would be by now. So it's less than two years old, but you know, obviously it was time for him to not be in the manger anymore, and it was sometime in that period. Why did they come? They came to worship Jesus. That's pretty clear in this passage. From the time they left, wherever they started out in the east, until the time that they arrived, their testimony was this. We came to worship the baby who would be king of the Jews. That was their, their mission from the time they left until they arrived. Um, when they got to Jesus, they bowed down on the ground, on their knees, they got prostrate, and they presented their gifts out of respect to Jesus as their king. Now, as I said earlier, we don't know for sure whether they believed that he was God or not because these characters, these magi, they move on after this passage and we never see them appear in Scripture again. We don't know what they did with this encounter. We don't know if they went back to the east and they said, we've seen God in human flesh, a baby who was born in a manger and his name is Jesus. We don't know any of that. And we assume because they made this great journey and that they did go home, that they took the story with them. We just don't know what happened with it. And there's a lot of legend that surrounds this. A lot of the, the Eastern traditions of Christianity, even some of those who are Christians in China, would claim that these magi actually came from the area that they're in. And that Christianity finds its roots in the testimony of the magi when they came back. But that's all outside of the Bible. And we just don't know how, to, how much of that to believe. In fact, I would say... Uh, very little of it is likely true. Most of those traditions appeared 500, 600 years later. There was plenty of time for urban legend to appear. But the Magi certainly came to worship. Where did they find Jesus? Let me just say a little bit about the house that he was in. Typically, at the place where they were at in Bethlehem, which was only about five miles from Jerusalem, People would live in a house that was built into the side of a hill. So if you picture that wall there as being you know, a, a hill, a cliff if you will, you could carve out inside of that hill a place to live. But in front of it, they would build a house. And typically what they would do is they would put the animals inside, especially in the winter months when it was cold. They put the animals inside and the animals would actually dwell in there. It was a place where the animals couldn't get away, kept them warm helped keep the family warm as well. But the family tended to dwell more in the front structure that they had built. The animals tended to dwell in the cave behind. It's quite likely when Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem and it says that the inn was all full, that it wasn't necessarily an inn like a, like a Motel 6 or something like that. Uh, Bethlehem was a very small town. It was not a tourist town. There, there wouldn't have been a lot of inns. In fact, mostly it would be people staying in other people's homes. And they may have paid money for it, but it wasn't like it was a chain. You see what I'm saying? And so, probably what happened was Mary and Joseph came, knocked on some doors, maybe even had some relatives there, and they were given a place to stay in the back with the animals. But it wasn't necessarily down the hill and around the corner in, in some other place. And it's quite likely that it, 
they were there because uh, they had to come in for the census uh, to get their the census to get their uh, name recorded for tax purposes, that after everybody left, they could move from the back of the house into the front of the house. So it may very well be that when these magi came, they came to the same place where Jesus was born, just not necessarily in where the animals were at, as in where the people were at. Now that's extrapolating a little bit, I realize, but that was the custom of the time, and that's probably what we're seeing here. So when they say Jesus is in a house, it's probably the same house that he was born in. It's just he's now in the, in the home with the people instead of with the animals. What did they bring? They bring gold, incense, and, and, and myrrh, and the incense is, is frankincense. Throughout the years, again, with all the urban legend, with all of the, the people that have, have tried to make more out of this story than it really is, some people have latched on to the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and they've, they've put a spiritual significance to each one. And I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you they're wrong because I simply don't know. What I can tell you is this. There's nothing in this text that makes us have to go there. There's nothing in this text that says, you know, these are symbolic of a much deeper meaning. And oftentimes when you read the Scriptures, there are things that would imply that there's a a deeper meaning behind it. For instance, when the dove comes down and lands on Jesus' shoulder after baptism, And throughout Scripture, we see that the dove is a representation of the Holy Spirit. That's not a stretch to say that God's Holy Spirit came upon Jesus Christ after His baptism. But here, there's nothing like that. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are used for all kinds of things in the Scriptures. There's there's not one consistent meaning each time it's used. And so it would be very difficult with any certainty to say that there's a spiritual significance to these other than the fact that every one of them is very precious in that day. If you got frankincense, you'd appreciate it. Today, not so much. You'd probably rather have an iPod or something a little bit more exciting. But these were very valuable, valued gifts in the society that Jesus lived in. And so when they brought these, they brought gifts that were truly fit for royalty, for a king. You wouldn't be ashamed to give any one of these three to royalty. It would be a great gift. And so there's probably no more meaning than that. Uh, Some people would say that gold is a reminder that Jesus was a king, that uh, frankincense was a reminder that he was God because it's often used as incense when prayers are being offered up. Even today in some of the more liturgical churches, they'll put frankincense in and they'll wave the thing and the the fragrance will come out. And this is representation of the prayers of God's people. And so some have said, well, that's, that's a sign that he's divine. And then lastly, the myrrh is often used in embalming. And we actually read that when Jesus was buried, there were some different spices mixed together. One of them is named, it's myrrh. And so this was a foretelling of Jesus' death. It's possible. But we certainly don't have to go there based on this passage. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to look at what we can take away with confidence from this passage. Why did God make mention of these guys? Why did God take at least two, maybe 12, most likely three guys, all the way from Babylon, from Persia, and send them on this long journey all the way to Bethlehem to make a visit to Jesus, to present a few gifts, and then to make their exit? And why did He record it for us so that 2,000 years later we can sit here and, and try and unravel all the urban legend and find out what it is that God wants us to know 
about this very special period in time. You know, I think it's interesting in this passage that Herod and all of the religious leaders of that day were less than five miles away from where Jesus was born. And yet God takes guys from far away and sends them over. I think it's amazing because even in our day, sometimes the people that are closest to God's truth, church folks, people raised in Christian families, sometimes the people that are closest to truth are the least likely to accept it, to live it out, to align with it. And sometimes the people that you never would think would have any access to God are the ones that God is pleased to use to do amazing things. Kind of turns us on our head sometimes. And that's what I see in this passage. Here's Herod, the king. All of the chief priests, the scribes, who have the scriptures that's been passed down to them throughout the generations that tell all about where Jesus is to be born. They had no problem figuring out where it was. They knew exactly where it was. It's Bethlehem. It's been prophesied. But yet when they received information that now was the time and that this promised Messiah was born, none of them went and worshipped. None of them brought gifts. What did they do? They hatched a plan to kill Jesus. It just reveals where their heart was at. They didn't want to serve God. They didn't want to worship God. They wanted to be served. God can't use people like that. He could give the most precious gift in the world. They wouldn't receive it. It was right there in their own backyard, accessible. Didn't want it. And I look at these men who came from afar, and I think they could have written this off and said, that's too far to go. That's going to cost too much. We could get lost along the way. We don't even know if this star really means what we think it means. And then when they got there and they met with the king, and they, they could have easily said, well, we're going to, you know, we're just going to go visit him and we'll go back and tell this guy where he's at. But they didn't. They demonstrated true faith. When the angel says, don't tell King Herod, they didn't tell King Herod. They went back a different way. When they had an opportunity to worship, they bowed down. They got on their face. When they had an opportunity to give, they gave the best gifts. They didn't give cheap gifts. They didn't give token gifts. They didn't say, well, here, I wrapped something up. It's for you. They gave the best. They gave gifts that were fit for a king. And as I look at these men who traveled, I'm reminded that for each one of us, there's a challenge here. Because all of us have an opportunity to worship Jesus Christ. And I see in these men a desire, an ability, a longing to believe in the truth. You know, sometimes the funny thing with truth is you don't like it. We all say we want to know the truth, but do you really want to know the truth? Sometimes you don't like what it means when you find out the truth. Everybody was saying in Jesus' day they wanted the truth. Even King Herod pays lip service to it. He says, I want to go worship him. But the truth was something that intimidated and scared off many in Jesus' day. They didn't want to come face to face with the truth. That Jesus Christ was God come in human flesh. And that it was His right to rule. But these men believed they had faith. And I think God is still looking today for men and women who will believe. Who will have faith. Who if God reveals truth to them will grab hold of it. 
and will do something with it. Are you a person who has faith? Are you a person that God would be likely to reveal truth to? Secondly, I see some men who are willing to go on a journey to seek. They're willing to go. They didn't say, well, it's too far. I can't be bothered. But they were willing to go. They got off of their tail. They got on their feet. And they went on this journey. You know, each one of us are on a journey as well. God's got you on a journey. He's got me on a journey. But along the way, you're going to be tempted sometimes to just sit down. It's more comfortable to sit than to do. And I think as God reveals His truth to you, you've got to ask yourself, am I willing to go on this journey that He has for me? It'll be scary sometimes. It won't always be easy. It won't always be convenient. But it will always lead you to truth and lead you to an opportunity to discover the risen Jesus Christ. God wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Christ. But you've got to go on that journey to discover it. He doesn't just bring it and drop it in your lap. And then lastly, I see men who are willing to worship. Truly worship. Now we come together on Sunday morning and it's our worship service. You all have been worshiping this morning. We're still worshiping now by taking a look at God's Word. But the Bible tells us, and we've talked about it in the past up here, we did a whole sermon series on worship, that not all worship is pleasing to God. God wants worship that is worship in spirit and in truth. God wants your heart involved. And you know you can sit here on Sunday morning sometimes, and you can have your mouth moving and say the words. We could shove a microphone in front of your mouth, and you might even sound good. But that doesn't mean it's coming from the heart. If you're like me, you have the ability to sing a Christian song and be thinking about Christmas shopping at the same time. I can do it. I know you can too. Or any number of things. And God wants your heart. Pastor Mark gets up here every Sunday after the first song and he just slows things down a bit. It's quiet. And he speaks a few words about where our heart's at. Are you prepared? You know, that's your and my opportunity on Sunday mornings to prepare our heart. You can tune Mark out. You can miss that opportunity. But if you really want to worship, if you really want to see God's face, if you really want to touch the hem of His garment, you've got to stop and you've got to think about things for a second. And you've got to consider the fact that you're a sinful man or a sinful woman. You've got some problems in your life. You've got some junk you brought into here. And you can't just waltz in and say, Yo, God, it's me. How you doing? Because God says, We've got some stuff we need to work out first. You've got to repent of the sin that's in your life. You've got to get clean before God. Now, God will do that. He promises if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His promise is there. But it's not an automatic. Just because you walk through these doors, it's all taken care of. Imagine you got in a fight with one of your best friends. Maybe somebody in your family. Had some words with each other. Got angry. Went your separate ways. A few hours later, you walk into the same room and you see each other. You'd like to make up. You'd like to get back to good. You've got to have a conversation. Something's got to be said. A facial expression. There's got to be some interaction between the two of you before you can be back to good. It's similar with God. You can't just walk in here and just start worshiping. 
You need to worship God in spirit and in truth. Be real with God. Come in here and tell God how you really feel, where you're really at. Have a conversation with Him and invite Him to be Lord of your life. If you do that, then you can worship God honestly. And that's what I see from these men. I see honest worship. It cost them to come. It wasn't convenient. might even have been scary at times. They were foreigners in a foreign land. Might have faced ridicule back at home. But they came. And they laid prostrate. And they gave gifts. And I want to end with that. This morning it's been mentioned a couple of times that this is the season of gift giving. And I want you to consider this. What gift is it that you're giving to God? I think it's wonderful that we give gifts to loved ones at this time of year. That's a great thing. I don't want you to stop doing that. I don't want you to go in debt to do it, but I don't want you to stop doing it. But what gift are you bringing to Jesus? What is it that you could give to Jesus that would be meaningful to Him? And have you put as much thought into that as you have into your other gifts that you're purchasing this time of year? I know of at least four couples in this church that in the last two weeks have approached us and said, we'd like to give to somebody this time of year. We'd like to just bless somebody in a financial way. They just want to give something to somebody who has less. Sometimes it is a financial gift that you give to Jesus. If you feel like God's put it on your heart to give to a family in need, to give to a ministry, then do it. Sometimes it's your, it's your actual time and energy, something that you know that God wants you to do. We filled out cards a few weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, we had uh, people come forward and put these cards in the offering box. You remember that? We had about 97, I believe, cards turned in. That's great. That's 97 extraordinary commitments that were made. That could be your gift to Jesus this year. That you actually follow through on that thing that you committed to do. And I know for many of us, that's been hard. It's easier to write it down than to live it out. But think about the gift that you'll give this year. What is it that God wants you to do in response to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You've recorded for us an extraordinary journey that some men made 2,000 years ago to a little place called Bethlehem. And that when they got there, they discovered the King of kings and Lord of lords as a small child still in his mother's arms. And that when they got there, they responded in obedience. They gave gifts. They gave worship. They prostrated themselves and humbled themselves before you. And Lord, we thank you for their example today. Lord, whether we're near to you or far off, Lord, you're calling each one of us to come and to worship at your feet, to give gifts, and to acknowledge you as the Lord of lords and King of kings. Lord, in the busyness this year of Christmas, in the celebration with family, in the buying of gifts, the exchange of gifts, Lord, may we not forget that You are the one to whom we owe everything. And Lord, may You help each one of us to discover this morning what it is that we're meant to give to You, to worship You this year. We thank You for another opportunity. 
Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for my friends here, fellow laborers. Lord, we pray that as you continue to watch over, to lead and to guide us, we would do honor to your name and that we would be always people who worship in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and do one more song.